0: You've lived a great life and done well for yourself. But what mark will you leave on the world? How will you inspire future generations? Stan Miller and Katie Beth Hand have helped thousands of people answer exactly those questions. If you've ever wondered, what will be my legacy? You're in the right place. Welcome to the Your Life, Your Legacy podcast. Now, here are your hosts, Stan and Katie Beth.
1: Welcome back, everyone, to the Your Life, Your Legacy podcast with your hosts, Stan Miller and Katie Beth Hand. Today, we are joined by John Jennings. John, welcome to the show. Hey. So great to have you on the show. So, John, you serve as the president and the chief strategist of the St. Louis Trust and Family Office. So for our listeners, give us just a very brief overview of what it is that you do and also what got you started in this industry.
2: Yeah, sure. Start by giving a little background. So, I started as an estate planning lawyer at a large St. Louis law firm. I did estate planning, tax law, and a little bit of traffic law on the side, which I still do. (laughs) Believe it or not, the uh, Missouri is a speeder's paradise because you can get your uh, traffic tickets fixed pretty easily. Not all states are that way. But anyway, then I worked at Arthur Anderson. I now am finding that I'm having to explain what Arthur Anderson is to younger people. But for all of you who haven't heard of Arthur Anderson, it was one of the big five accounting firms. Now there's a big four. And they went under in the, ra- uh, the wake of the Enron scandal. And then we formed our firm, St. Louis Trust and Family Office, out of the ashes of Arthur Anderson. So we've been in business for 20 years. So a handful of us met with our primary founder who was looking to start a boutique trust company, What was his thought. And we brought 14 client families with us and about 500 million of assets under management. And today, 20 years later, we oversee about 13 billion of uh, investment assets, 15, 16 billion, if you include everything else, for 63 families all across the United States. So if you do the quick math on that, our average client has a bit over $200 million,
1: that's fantastic. So what got you started in this industry? What made you interested in doing this type of thing?
2: Oh, my gosh. I went to law school basically because I didn't want to stop taking naps. I did, didn't did want to leave the utopia, which was Columbia, Missouri. As you know, pretty much every major college town is their own form of utopia surrounded by reality, right? True. I will say Columbia actually really is utopia. It's fabulous. But then, you know, I hadn't visited, you know, like Boulder, Colorado or Madison, Wisconsin, <laughs> and I was like, okay, Columbia was cool, but not quite. And then also I graduated during the first jobless recovery. I graduated in 1992 and then I saw a lot of people not getting great jobs. So I was like, what the heck? I'll go to law school. And in law school, which I loved, I took, uh, I liked my trust in estates course, but then I took a five hour course on estate tax, uh, tr- wealth transfer tax laws. And I was like, I'm hooked. Like, I just love the creativity of it. I mean, it's technical, but yet creative. And I just fell in love. And then on my first day at my big law firm, I'd, I'd clerk there two summers. I was assigned to like healthcare transactions and like real estate or something. And I went into the, the head of the corporate department. I said, I'd like to switch. I'd like to be a tax and estates state's lawyer. And he's like, are you crazy? He goes, that sounds horrible. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, but that's what I want to do.
1: That is fantastic. So talk to us about some of the unique strategies and tools that you use to help these families that you work with now, the 63 families that you work with. What are some of your unique strategies and things that you do with your clients?
2: Well, you know, I think, you know, we we mainly work in the $100 million and up range, you know, kind of 100 to 500. We have some above that, some below that, but that's the main range we work in. But so it's really understanding what each family wants. You know, we've had some families. In fact, I had a client die about a year ago you know, very, very well, hundreds of millions of dollars. And he did pretty much no tax focused estate planning. He's like, I want to keep things simple. I don't want to complicate my life. My family will have enough and I won't be around to pay the taxes. Right. And there are some families that are like that. Others are like, I want to save every last dollar I can. I want to do every estate planning transaction I possibly can. And even if you have hundreds of millions of dollars, if you start early and you're willing to, to do what it takes, you know, the estate tax is largely optional. It is. Yep. In fact, there was a, a one of my partners wrote an article and, and I forget who said <laughs> it, but there was this, this person that had said only morons pay estate tax. <laughs> he, he wrote an article about that. And, you know, I think that's a little strong, but you know, I, I wouldn't say if you pay state tax, you're, you're a moron, but yeah. So it's just how much do they want to be tax focused and complicate their lives? We do a lot of installment sales to intentionally defective trusts. That's the go-to that our clients Mm -hmm. end up using. I would say of our 63 families, probably 55 of them have done that transaction at one point in time. And then on top of that, you know, there's all the the charitable strategies and the grats and the, the and the, the gifting and the discounting and, you know, all that on top of it.
1: Stan, I know you're brimming with questions.
0: Yeah, I'm all ready to jump in here because, you know, I'm guessing that when you have clients, client families, like the kind you're describing, you know, these are large enough accounts that you have every opportunity to spend quality time with them, to -hmm. get to know them at a deeper level. level. One of the things that's fascinated me, and this is, I wrote a book about this, which I'm going to send you, but I'm really fascinated by the, the why of wealth, the why in estate planning to me. Opens the door to the, it the opportunity for clients to share with us to the extent they've thought about it, what they want the meaning of their wealth to be over a long time horizon, not just during your lifetime, but after they're gone. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that those are conversations that you have sometimes with your clients.
2: We absolutely do. Yeah. It's interesting. I, actually, so I've, my, I've written a book that's more investment focused. My next book is tentatively title. I've learned that whatever you think your title is, your publisher ends up changing it. So, but tentatively is title, I've started writing it is how to be wealthy and it's not how to get wealthy. It's once you're wealthy, how do you do that well with purpose and how do you do it without ruining your children? And you know, what happens, you know, it's kind of like you've moved up Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? What do you do? What do you do when you, You don't have to go to work to, you know, save for retirement and put your kids in college. And, you know, the thing that we deal with with some of our clients is, you know, what do I do with all this money? Like, what do I do with it? And we start out early on and we ask the question. I I love to ask the question this way. I say, okay, let's say over the next 30 years, you can get a 7% return or a 9% return. You obviously would prefer the nine, right? Assuming a similar, you know, path to getting there, but why? Like, what are you going to do with that extra, you know, 2% over 30 years? I mean, where's it going to go? Other than the fact that you've won, you know, you've your opportunity was getting nine versus why would you take seven? What are you going to do with it? And, you know, I've had a number of clients just stop and look at me and they're like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I would just take the nine because it's more money. I'm like, what are you going to do with more money? So my favorite definition of, of wealthy and it's my favorite because I came up with it, but this is it. dealing with these sorts of clients for decades is whether you look at somebody's total wealth or their net worth or their income. And if you said, if it doubled tomorrow, would anything materially change about their life? And if the answer is no, like, oh, I'd like that because I'd feel more financial security or I'd save more, or I could give more to charity, whatever. But if nothing else changes, so like basically your wants, your needs, and then your wants are being met by your current income and wealth you know, anything above that is just what I like to refer to as being in the gravy, right? And pretty much all our clients are in the gravy. So we don't really do financial planning or retirement planning. It's like, what do you want the legacy of your life to be or the money to be? <laughs> They're related.
0: So I want to consider this conversation. I want you to consider this conversation, John, as an opportunity to, to kind of try out some of the themes that are going to be in this book. This, this right. is like a, like a prequel, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, to, like a preface to this. To, and then I promise I'll buy the book whenever it comes out. We'll <laughs> it. But what are some of the themes that, you know, that when you get past the idea of this, what do you do next? What are some of the themes you're developing there? Like in terms of what do you do with the wealth
2: and what do you do how, to, the- how to be wealthy. What are some of the themes there about how to be wealthy? Yeah. So part of it is, is, You know, the relationship between money and happiness. And people always say, you know, money doesn't buy happiness. And that's not right. It absolutely can't, if used correctly. And, you know, pretty much every study out there shows a positive correlation between having more money and being happier or showing greater life satisfaction. Now, these are averages. So there's, you know, we all can think of exceptions in either direction. But if you have more money, you have typically better healthcare. And you have, you know, greater leisure time, typically, and you have all these, you have all these things you can do. But the key is, is that, you know, and I, I wrote an, I write for Forbes, and I wrote a, an article in Forbes, how to, you know, the ways to use money to buy happiness. And what research has found is one of the key ways to do this, is you use your money to buy experiences, rather than things, right? So that's number one. And a second is, is that you use it with other people. So we're social animals. So there was this great, uh, David Brooks, who writes in the New York Times, he wrote this great article about 10 or 11 years ago, and it's called the Hamish line. And Hamish is uh, like some uh, Yiddish word or Hebrew word. I forget what it means. But he talked about in this book, going on the safari. And that part of the safari, they lived in this village where everybody was basically in this little hut. But every night, everybody would gather around the fire and they would sing and they drink or do whatever they were doing. And it was like this great experience. And then they went to like this, this other area that was like this town and everybody stayed in houses, but everybody, you know, you had neighbors, you felt sort of collegial. And then as part of the trip, they were staying basically in this resort where everybody had their own little cabin and nobody saw each other and everybody felt isolated. And he said, you could take that back to America. You see a lot of times when people have more and more wealth, they isolate themselves and they're living on acreage and they have you know all sorts of, you know, gates and whatever. And really we're social tribal, you know, that's how we are. So it's kind of interesting, look at how you use your wealth. Like, are you isolating yourself or are you making yourself more connected? And you can overcome these things. Sometimes some of these houses that are in gated communities, I mean, sometimes a gated community is great. Sometimes there's a country club there. So I'm not poo-pooing any of that. It's just thinking about how you're spending your time. You can use your money to be around other people more. Like I I had a client that rented a jet, like a huge jet, like a commercial airliner size and took 50 friends and family members to Europe and paid for it all, like for two weeks. Like, that's awesome. Like that, you know, it's like, wow. I mean, it was really expensive. (laughs) And then we were like, and some of this is a gift to some of these people that you've already made an exclusion gifts to. And he's like, ah, are you kidding me? I'm like, nope, sorry.
1: Do you do so, a lot with philanthropy and getting families started in charities and different things like that? Is that a, a part of what you do as well?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And In fact, I teach a course at Washington University in St. Louis in their, their graduate wealth and asset management program. I teach a course, what is it called? Endowments, Foundations, and Philanthropy, right? So it's because I've gotten so interested in this helping clients. So you can, you can think of charitable giving in like a continuum, So on on one side is being charitable. So that's where you give to organizations that you know and you like and you think they're doing good work. And that's great. That's what most people do. And on the other side of the spectrum, you have philanthropy. So think about the, I think it's still called this, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And um, like think, think about how they give. They're not worried about individual charities. They're taking on things like they want to end malaria, right? So they're going to give where they're seeing a return on their charitable dollars. And what we do is some of our clients, not everybody's interested, is taking some of their giving maybe from charitable to philanthropic and say, what causes are you interested in? And let's try to really you know, move the needle and do this as some of these bigger, more professional donors give. So on one hand, if they're on more of the charitable giving, yes, we'll, we'll keep track of it. We'll help facilitate it, do it in a tax-efficient manner. We listened to my uh, sirens in the background. Here I am in uh, Clayton, Missouri. So, we'll help keep track of all their charitable giving and, you know, donor-advised funds, we'll run their private foundations, you know, help negotiate, you know, pledges and different sort of structured giving, you know, talk about different charitable planning through different charitable trusts, but then we'll also help them and sometimes bring in outside consultants that specialize in this to do the more, you know, values-based focused philanthropy.
0: So, John, one of the one of the interests of mine in particular has been to look at the connection between family philanthropy and the impact that our senior generation clients want to have on younger generation family members and connecting those two dots. I'm really curious to hear your your take on that, given the experiences I'm sure you've had with your clients.
2: Yeah, so what we've seen be effective, let me first say that a lot of times the older generation is just frustrated, right? (laughs) So they're they're sometimes at a different point in their life. And they'll think charity and and giving is really important, and it's just not always a given that the kids are going to come along <laughs> with that. And we've done various things where, like, if they have a donor advice fund, it's like, okay, we're going to split out a certain amount every year to each of the the next generation, so that they can give. So we're going to give them the money to give. We've done things where we've encouraged them to be on charitable boards. This whole idea of being philanthropic though is great. So where a family has a family foundation or a donor advice fund, sometimes we'll you know have them on the the board and, you know, have them involved in evaluating grants or even deciding the areas. So we worked with a family once and we were putting this together and the family was like, okay, one of our areas is the environment and another is, you know, healthcare and the younger generation had a say in the subcategories. So like, you know, one of the younger generation was very passionate in healthcare about childhood obesity. So that became something that the family gave to. So I I think those, you know, this whole idea of being a little bit more of a strategic philanthropist is great for bringing in the, the next generation. But I will admit that just because the senior generation is interested doesn't mean the lower generation is going to be. And I've seen the vice versa. The lower generation is really interested in charitable giving and the older generation isn't. So, you know, you tend to have some shared family values and cultures and things, but not always.
0: I'm sure that's true. But one of the things that we know, I'm sure you've seen this many times over your career, is the power of... Uh the power of wealth to do damage. And so I've always, you know, I felt like if if the senior generation could somehow connect the younger generation and get them interested, you know, at least nudge them gently in that direction, that philanthropy be- does become potentially an antidote to what we called uh, affluenza.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I would say the number one concern of our clients, not every single one of them, but across the board, is worried about ruining their kids or grandkids or great-grandkids.
0: So, what are, what are some of the strategies that you're helping them implement to prevent that?
2: Well, the number one thing we tell our clients: this is, we've done a lot of reading and research on this. And actually, one of the best books on this was published in the early 1990s. I don't think it's even in print anymore, but it was by this PhD psychologist that was a counselor, was the main counselor at like the Beverly Hills school district. (laughs) It's fantastic. But the number one thing is living, you know, we tell our clients, if you live your values, you know, that's the best chance of them, you know, happening. So if you think, if you think it's important that your kids have jobs and work, then you should have a job and work, right? It's hard to say, okay, I'm going to be, you know, maybe well-earned, well-deserved, but I'm just going to be, you know, early retired or late retired or whatever and I'm going to be preaching to my kids the the value of of working like if they don't see you working it's sometimes harder for that to take like there's we see these family values that roll through generations i mean we we've had, had clients that have hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars and nobody spends any money like their entire you know family uh, culture ethos is we don't spend money and we stay under the radar and we're not about material things and i mean that's presents its own set of problems by the way and then you know others That do charitable giving. And yeah, there's other ways. But I think, you know, one risk advisors have is advisors, with rare exception, are basically middle class, right? They come from typically middle class or maybe lower than that backgrounds. They go to college, they go to maybe grad school, they get certifications, they work. And so we're influenced, and, and I put myself in that category. We put ourselves like we're influenced by how we were raised and how we're raising our children and our friends and our social group. And I think there can be this tendency sometimes to put those values on people that are in a just much different generation. Like we have some client families that have had, you know, tremendous wealth for three, four, five, six generations, you know? And to try to put middle-class values on that, it just doesn't fit. I mean, for their family, you know, maybe you work for a few years after college and that's fine, you know? So we just try to be careful about, we're not always successful of not projecting to another family what we think their values should be. So part of it is a discovery of, you know, what are their values? Because from the outside, it can look like affluenza or, you know, the the idle rich or what have you. And some of these people are just very happy and fulfilled. (laughs) Yeah. So we've talked about the book that
0: you're writing. Tell me about the book you have written.
2: Oh, yeah. Thanks. So the book I've written that comes out in May, because it takes forever, even though I was done writing and the first round of editing was done this past April, it's called The Uncertainty Solution, How to Invest with Confidence in the Face of the Unknown. So a big part of my job in our firm here is we manage money. So the book is not how to invest, but it's more how to think about investing. And really in the wake of the financial crisis, you know, I, before that, I felt like to be a, a good wealth advisor, that I I basically had to know as much as possible about everything that was going on in the financial markets. And I came to realize through the financial crisis that that's just not true, that I was in the forest and you know, I was in the trees, not seeing the forest. And really what great investors do is they fall back on mental models. So mental models are models you keep in your head of how the world works. And Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's partner, business partner, first championed this idea back in 1994, not necessarily of investment mental models, but mental models in business and in personal lives to make decisions. And he says, you have to study them and you have to have these things that you know when to fall back on. You just can't just randomly, you know, just like, just bang back facts at people. They've got to be things that hang like, in. Your head. So like one of his is like, if you ever sent an email and not gotten a, a response, right? You're like, oh maybe feel hurt, maybe get a bit angry or other things happen in your life. One of his favorite mental models is called Hanlon's Razor. And it says, never attribute malice to that which can be explained by stupidity or carelessness or disorganization or or whatever. And if you think about it, if you use this all the time, when you don't get a response back to an email, you get cut off in traffic or your brother forgets your birthday or you get ghosted for lunch. Like, remember that people... With a rare circumstance, unless they're a teenage girl, do not intend malice. And I say that as a father, two girls in their 20s. They come back out of that valley, by the way. So that's an example of a mental model, and there's these other great mental models that great investors use that they fall back on. So that's what the book's about, and it's not just about investing, like my 23-year-old daughter who's uh, getting her master's in English, so she's not like a financial person, she read it, and she was like, "Dad, this isn't even really an investing book. This is like how to make decisions better in life. And it's mostly stories and it's kind of fun. I like it.
0: It's gotten good. Well, you've got me engaged. I'm really fascinated by this. And so I'm going to hop off. As soon as we conclude, I'm going to hop on Amazon and buy it. I hope,
2: is it there Well, It's not not out to May. So sorry. Yeah, May,
1: 2023. And we'll, we'll talk about this again at the show, but for all of our listeners who may have missed it, the book is called The Uncertainty Solution, How to Invest with Confidence in the Face of the Unknown. And it comes out in May, 2023. So for some of our listeners, it will already be out. And will it be available on Amazon and all the major retailers, John?
2: Everywhere. And uh, yeah, Okay. bookstores and everything. They're out like the uh, publishing companies out selling them right now to buyers. So we'll see.
1: Awesome. Fantastic. Well, my, yeah, it sounds like it'll, I, I, it would be a great read.
2: And my goal with the book isn't necessarily like a lot of sales. I mean, I'd rather it be read than sold. So we p- plan to give away a lot of them. And, you know, I really think for people that read the book, I mean, my true hope is that they have more money in 20 years than they would have otherwise. That's
1: great. That's fantastic. And that's that's not the only thing that you have going on. Obviously, there are multiple other things. But one thing that caught my interest is that you have a blog that is the interesting fact of the day. So tell us a little bit about the ifod.com what your motivation is, what kind of things you put on there, why people should go and check that out.
2: Yeah, it's really pretty eclectic. It doesn't have any particular theme. In fact, the branding person I'm working with for my book, she looked at it and she goes, you know, at first I thought maybe we can tighten this up and, you know, in terms of your brand, you know, and wealth management and estate planning and all that. And she goes, no, I thought about it. Like I guess part of your brand is just eclectic, interesting things. So I can't say that they're all interesting. I think they're all interesting, but Yeah, it just really varies. So some of my top ones that get a lot of hits, you know, thousands and thousands of hits a year are what happens to a bullet shot straight up in the air in terms of physics. Believe it or not, that has like 15,000 clicks. Why do females generally have neater handwriting than males is another one that's gotten quite a few. Why do competitors tend to put stores next to each other? Have you ever noticed a CVS, a Walgreens right down the street or a Home Depot and a Lowe's? You know, why do they do that? So yeah, all sorts of uh, things like that. So my most recent one is right before Thanksgiving, since we're in the World Cup soccer timetable right now, you know, what is the economic drag in terms of lost worker productivity from World Cup games? And with some fascinating data looking at stock trades and how when a country's soccer team is playing, how much their volume of stock trading falls off during the game. Fascinating.
1: It's fascinating, and all of the things that I've looked at on there are very interesting and very much across the board. I would be very interested to also see the stats of the one you're talking about broken down by country as well. But very interesting, the So for our listeners, be sure to go there. You can sign up. You can sign up on there to get it by email. Is that correct, John? Yeah,
2: yeah, exactly. Fantastic. Importantly, it's easy to unsubscribe, and I'm not selling anything.
1: Eat. That's great. Just interesting facts. You know, great. You know, I think this is great for financial advisors and attorneys as well because sometimes some of these things look like they might be a great conversation starter when new clients come in for an initial visit. What a great random topic to get the ball rolling is some of these very interesting facts of the day.
0: Yeah, so John, don't you do you feel pressure to have to come up with? I mean, those are really interesting topics. I mean, do you worry that maybe tomorrow you won't have
2: one that's that I, I have about five hundred of them in the queue, so. And so I read a, I read a ton. I've read, I don't know, 64, 65 books so far this year. That's about my usual. I read around 70 something a year typically. But if you read a ton and then when you're reading anything else, it's not a book. And you came across something, you said, oh, that's interesting. And then you emailed it yourself and kept it in a folder. It wouldn't be that hard to, to find things. What, what is surprising to me is how many things I read that I go, oh, that's interesting. And then when I dig into it, It's not correct. (laughs) In fact, I think one of my upcoming iPods is things that people think are true that are absolutely not true.
1: I'm already interested. Another one that I would suggest would be, this is what I used to run into all the time, quote that people think, my background's in ministry, quotes Mm -hmm. that people think came from scripture that actually aren't at all from scripture. People use them all the time and they're like, and that's from the Bible. It's not. And so that would be a very interesting, iPod. is people quoting, maybe misquotes would be a great great iPod topic. I'm going to
2: email it to myself. Misquotes would be great because there's all quotes that are attributed to people. I mean, probably, probably like half the quotes attributed to Mark Twain and a quarter attributed to to Yogi Berra was, (laughs) are probably not correct.
1: (laughs) Yes. So there you go. That is your payback for being on the show today. We gave you some things for your Thank iPods. You. Is, there anything, is there anything else that we didn't talk about that you would like our listeners to know about?
2: Oh, there's so much, but I know we have I know, I know we have limited time. You know, something I've been researching lately is, um, you know, it kind of made me think more about this, things that people think are true that are not, is I had long thought, and I've read multiple places, that something like 70 or 80% of jackpot winners in the lottery go bankrupt within a certain amount of time or think right. that their lives were ruined. And that is absolutely incorrect. Completely- really?
1: You know, I've, I've read that. I've heard that I've multiple read it from too. multiple sources. Yeah.
2: I have read it too. I have read it too. I was like certain of it. And it's certain that it's out there. And it's based on partially a study from 1978 that's sort of been misinterpreted and only had a sample size of 22, which is pretty small and then it's based on the National Financial Education Foundation i think that's what they're called so it's always attributed to them if it's attributed to anybody and they put out a statement in 2014 saying stop saying the stat there's no scientific backing for it and what happened was according to them is i guess they had like a round table of financial advisors and one of the advisors said that stat so then it was on the website of this you know prestigious organization so people would cite it And then it just made itself everywhere. And it turns out that there's a lot better conducted studies that find, you know, these are averages. So there's definitely exceptions, but that lottery winners show greater life satisfaction two and five and 10 years later than control samples. Wow.
1: See, that is an interesting fact for the day. I would have said that that was inaccurate because I have read-
2: I would have too. The inaccurate
1: data on that, multiple from multiple sources. By the way, it's quoted in you books. Know. I've seen it on different websites, and it's everybody like, talks it's like about a, that. It's
2: like a known truism, it's like people saying that the only man-made structure you can see from space is the Great Wall of China. Also, completely incorrect. Not true. You cannot see the Great Wall of China from space. You know what you can maybe see is like a Walmart supercenter. It's all lit up. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you know, we're state and I are located here in Arkansas, so we know all about Walmart supercenters. We're uh, the home of Walmart here.
2: Uh, of course, you are.
1: Of course, you are. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, thanks for listening, guys. This has been the Your Life Your Legacy podcast with your hosts Stan Miller and Katie Beth Hand. Our guest today has been John Jennings. You can find out more information about John at stlouistrust.com. dot and you can check out his interesting fact of the day at www.theifod, that's T-H-E-I-F-O-D.com. And you can check out his book, The Uncertainty Solution, which will be available beginning May 2023. John, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate everything.
2: Thank you both. That was fun.
0: Thanks for listening to the Your Life, Your Legacy podcast with Stan Miller and Katie Beth Han. If you enjoyed the show, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find out more about Stan and Katie Beth, go to PinnacleLegacyLaw.com. You can also find links in the show notes.